Welcome everyone to another episode of Where's This Going? Before we get into it today, I want to please urge you to subscribe to my YouTube channel that you can find by searching my name Felix Levine on YouTube. There you'll find every episode in video format as well as smaller clips and highlights. And also please follow me on Instagram at Felix.Levine. There you'll be updated on all new episodes as they come out as well as small little promotional clips. And check out my website, felix-levine.com, where if you're a sponsor or a fan looking to get in touch with me, you have all my contact information there handy, as well as testimonials from past guests, both audio and video formats of every single episode and photos from every single recording. Go check it out today. I also want to give a massive shout out to my longtime sponsor in U.S. Wellness Meats. U.S. Wellness Meats, over 400 all-natural whole foods in their online store at uswellnessmeats.com. All of their foods are raised on family farms dedicated to sustainable and ethical principles. They do not use any pesticides, herbicides, antibiotics, growth hormones, or GMOs. They supply nutrient-dense all-natural foods to professional football and baseball teams, colleges, individual athletes at the highest levels of every sport, health professionals, respected gourmet chefs, fine dining establishments, and families all over the country in every state, as well as Canada and Puerto Rico, and people who are simply looking for the best quality food on the planet. U.S. Wellness Meats ships anywhere in the country for only $9.50 for shipping and handling, and most orders are delivered within 24 to 48 hours of leaving their facilities. Use promo code PODCAST and you'll receive 15% off store-wide savings at uswellnessmeats.com. Again, uswellnessmeats.com. Use that promo code PODCAST, P-O-D-C-A-S-T, and you'll receive 15% off of every single order. Go check it out today. And my next guest, he is one of the co-founders of Black Lives Matter Greater New York and is one of the leading activists in the movement, please welcome the great and powerful Hawk Newsom. live i'm here with uh hawk newsom thank you uh first of all i had your sister shivana on the show for people who uh are not familiar with that episode i think it was a couple episodes back shivana newsom um just a fantastic individual and now to have you is uh is really an honor um so thank you for being here today uh thank you thank you um for having me and your to the listeners <laughs> so I, t- <laughs> I told you a, a few seconds ago, um, is there a little tidbit, a little something that the world doesn't know about Hawk Newsom? Doesn't know about me. Um, I never was a conformist, mm-hmm. right? So I, I never was just one thing. I, w- I was taught later never to, 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 to create a being or, 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 or yourself as, as one person who could be put in a box. The earliest memory of that is um, junior high school. Like I used to love basketball, I used to play basketball. I listened to Big Daddy Kane, Juice Crew, all the hot rap special ed back then. But on the next day, I'd be listening to Guns N' Roses, Appetite for Destruction, wearing a Metallica t-shirt, riding a skateboard. 
right <laughs> and um some of my friends used to make fun of me call me white boy walter <laughs> but um like like yeah that was that was it so um i guess just I, i've always marched to the beat of my own drum mm. and um did what what i felt was right in my heart so um i was definitely a skater before skating was really cool in our communities and you know in the south bronx or whatever but um that was that was it and i'll tell you one thing um basketball skating not so much but riding a skateboard was the freest i ever felt why is that um it was just like you know you out there you're on your board you feel like a rebel and you know the wind's blowing you're picking up speed you're you're always at risk right so it's it's just it's just the feeling of being free i think the closest i felt to that in recent times was um being out in minnesota a couple of days after um George Floyd was killed. Yeah, I think I heard you um on my ride today here. I listened to two of uh episodes that you were on. Mm -hmm. I started off with Cannon's class, you and okay. Nick Cannon, which was great. Um for people who haven't listened, um it's just Hawk and Nick Cannon for about 45 minutes. And then a little farther back, uh you with Candace Owens, huh. which was <laughs> which was something. Um yeah. but I got to say riveting. To, I mean, amazing to listen to, um, just you guys going back and forth. Um, but I do remember you talking about that, saying that the freest you felt was when you saw, I think it was the precinct or something burning in front of you from like 50 yards away. Wells Fargo. Wells Fargo. Wells Fargo. We were in front of the precinct, and um, it was amazing. We marched. Um, there was no police presence. It was just the people controlling the streets. There was no, you felt like the government didn't have any control over you. You felt like the police didn't have any control over you. And then we went to the precinct and when the pre pre police saw us coming, they ran inside. Uh, they cut off the lights and they went up on the roof. They, you know, they had a couple of snipers up there, a couple of people with um, rubber bullets, uh, guns, and you know, those cannons for the tear gas. But we owned the streets so um we were out there for about two hours gave a couple of speeches and we walked over to uh, one of the young ladies with us had to get in her car so we were realistically we were sitting in a bus stop for about 45 minutes and as we walked back over wells fargo was on fire and it was like wow you think back you know you think uh, about the indigenous people but you also think about black folk in the i think Wells Fargo has settled close to a billion dollars. They paid out a, a close to a billion dollars for lawsuits where in which uh, racial discrimination was alleged. Mm. So they have a history of racist practices, and for them to go up and smoke, it was quite symbolic. What What was the feeling of just sitting back and watching that happen? When you say at the freest I felt, what did that feel like for you? It was serenity. Mm. It was serenity. And... um in our lives as organizers, as revolutionaries, peace is a commodity. Peace is, is something that's really never tangible. You're able to steal peace in moments, you know, moments of love, be it with friends, with the people, or with your partner. Um, peace is just not anything that you can grasp at the ready. So when you feel it, you know, it's 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 truly a treasure. And I know that um, in listening to to some of your past interviews, you're big on meditation. Mm -hmm. What is what is meditation? I mean, I know I've had guests talk about meditation. It's different for everyone. What does meditation look like? For uh, you? Usually, my meditation comes in the form of prayer. Mm 
Okay. Uh, I pray. I wake up in the morning. I try to listen to Sarah Jakes. She's T.D. Jakes' daughter. Um, her messages are always on point. Um, I always pray when I'm in the shower. Um, I pray several times a day. But other at other points, like um, I never forget, I was uh, in Ireland on the cliffs of Mohar. And um, I sat at the edge, like the very edge of a cliff. And I meditated with the, the, the waves crashing beneath me. We were extremely high up. It was, it was beautiful. Um, I, I try to get to the mountains as much as possible so that I could um, meditate. But um, last week, we were two weeks ago, we were out in Santa Monica on the beach. And one of our guys is like a monk. Right, he's a black kid with dreads, and um, he's constantly, you know, he has his stones. We all wear stone, carry or wear stones, but um, he has his stones. He's always conscious of his diet. He's always seeking another plane, and he led us in a meditation on the beach. And you know, we present as very, um, I say, hardcore or you know, hip hop culture, the men and the women, you know, and and these aren't the people you would expect to see meditating. So to see us meditating, it actually drew in like young black dudes. One young black dude who was from Detroit, you know, um, he was like, I always thought about meditating and it kind of brought him into the culture. But people, what people need to understand is, you know, meditation leads to productivity, it leads to clarity. It has this, this amazing impact on your mind as well as your body. So I'd love to, spread that throughout, um, you know, inner cities and poor neighborhoods across the country. And for you personally, I mean, you're, I'm sure you're always busy, but I know when, um, when Shivana was on, you know, during prime pandemic, you guys were out, you know, delivering food to people in the community. Um, then, you know, George Floyd, and there's so many different things that have happened. Do you ever have moments to just sit back and kind of take it in and, uh, Moments for yourself, really, I guess. Uh, I steal them. You steal them? I steal how, them. How do you steal them? Um, you know, whether it's, it's with my empress or with my children or even times where I'm alone. Like, on the drive here, I was like, wow, I haven't been alone in weeks. Wow. You know what I mean? Yeah. Like, Like, just alone, like really in the car, smoking a cigar playing some ratchet music and just, you know, just <laughs> like, like really alone time, you know, uh, that is, that is hard to come by. So it's, 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 you got to understand there's always something happening. When I sat down and I opened my phone, my sister Shivana just posted that an autistic girl was placed in prison, a 15 year old for not doing her homework. So when you get that, you're like, okay, how can I help, right? right? Are we launching a social media campaign? Are we going after the judge? Are we going after the prosecutor? Who do we blame? How do we attack this? What's the strategy? And that happens several times a day. You know what I mean? Like, it's to the point where um, some days I just don't, like, social media takes attacks on me, um, attacks, T-A-X, and, um, and it's because a lot of the times it's so much heavy content and then you had that you know you, you have pressure from the government you have white supremacists who are making death threats so there's always a lot of um negative energy in my social media 
it's no longer fun. Social media is about work for me. I say if I if there's any time that I have fun, it's in my stories on IG. Mm-hmm. And it's like, wow, this steak is popping. Or <laughs> look at the scenery. You know what I mean? But just scrolling through my timeline, right. it's always hardcore, heavy content, you know? So uh, there's not a lot of peace, but the struggle is beautiful. Helping people is beautiful. It makes it all worth it. Listening to good music brings me peace. Um, Yeah. What what does your daily schedule look like, would you say? Wow. Okay. So um, just waking up in the morning. Got to thank God. I don't know, but today seems kind of odd. No, that's Ice Cube. <laughs> today was a good day, <laughs> but I'm not. Uh, wake up, um, flick open the Bible app, read a scripture, um, lay in the bed, check some emails, get up, get in the shower, uh, do some stretches. I used to do what I call broga. It was like whatever um, yoga poses I liked, I just do it myself. <laughs> you know what I mean? But um, take a shower, listen to, this, listen to some T.D. Jakes, Sarah Jakes, and who knows what the day looks like. Sometimes, sometimes the day could look like meetings, podcasts, um, photo shoots, uh, helping people, picking up food, delivering groceries like we did in COVID, um, answering questions. I realize like now my... um mental capital is what I'm expending most, Hmm. right? So before it was physical, it was marching, it was, you know, getting out there and and, and doing things. But now it appears as though my insights and my strategy is what's needed most in the movement Hmm. as opposed to my physical presence. So it's, it's, it's a lot of phone calls. It's giving a lot of advice. It's coordinating with the team with Shivana with Linda with um you know Mal or Glenn and um figuring out what we need to do uh you get a lot of phone calls and it's like hey Charlie for instance Charlie's having a problem what should we do and before I would try and figure everything out for Charlie myself but now it's like okay you call this office you call that office you do this or you do that because people will suck your energy dry Mm -hmm. people have no consideration of your energy and they'll they'll tax you and it's cool because they need help but what you have to do is somebody as as somebody who needs to help a lot of folks is you have to limit the amount of energy like what kind of phone do you have over there an iphone I got an iPhone too, right? Like, let's say your iPhone is running on two apps and my iPhone is running on 20 apps. Yours will maintain a charge longer. So what I'm trying to do is minimize my usage, you you know? And I do that by pointing people in other directions. And also a good way to um, weed out who really needs help and who doesn't is... You give people assignments. Mm. I always do that. Like, if you want my help, here's what I need you to do. I need you to do A, B, C, and D. Uh, You need me to weigh in on an issue. You need me to fight for you. I need you to type out an email. Of course, you know, I make sure that people are capable 
of doing what I asked them to do. But this this is a management structure. This ain't activism. This is management. This is business organizational skills. You give people assignments and you say, okay, give me that. And I could go over it with my team and we can help you. A lot of people never get back. And, um, you know, there are some people that, that might need help, but I can't help you unless you put forth the initiative because right. most of the work is going to fall on you, right? right? And the second that a person feels as though you're not giving them all of your attention, they'll turn on you. I've had people turn on me. Yeah. People who I put my life on the line for turn on me. So a lot of times it's, it's about self-preservation. It's organization. It's, 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 it's preserving the organization's integrity and um, our reputation. And the way that we do that is ensure that the people who we are helping are willing to um, do exactly what we do for them themselves. Yeah. Now that makes a lot of sense. And I actually, before I even go forward, I, I'm curious more. Uh, I want to take you back, back to the young days, um, a young Hawk Newsom. Because when Shivana was in here, she was telling us that uh, you know you guys would wake up, politics news was always on. Um, you guys, ha I think she said, uh, a wooden table. You guys would always have debates. Your parents met at a civil rights civil rights. Uh, rally or something of, of that sort um, back in the 60s. So it was always in your DNA. Did you imagine when you were younger that this would be what you're doing now? No, man. I was supposed to be Tony Hawk or Michael Jordan. <laughs> <laughs> I was supposed to be a pe professional skateboarder or a professional basketball player. That, that, was, that was it. Like um, I always loved sports. I always loved competition I always liked winning and um no like no I uh I was raised in a household where we helped everybody if relatives couldn't afford tuition you know before my father got sick and we got like poor poor um we helped everybody somebody needed tuition my dad would pay their tuition a relative needed books he'd pay their books he would pay for their books. Um, relatives got evicted from their homes. They were, you know, houseless. And um, they'd come and live with us. We're talking like whole family, six, seven people living in our two-bedroom apartment with us. So it was like my family believed in helping, believed in helping people even if it was to their detriment. But it was always if I had, you have. So I was being trained to be this person but I always thought that I would um that I would go another route. Yeah. And you talk about political debate. That's all we did. Um <laughs> who who my, won? You or Shavana? Uh it was interesting. Um because my mother would always take her side. Still, <laughs> like <laughs> she'd always take her side. But it was tough. I'd say the toughest time was Kerry Bush. Uh -huh. I did not like George Bush. But I felt like he was—he would be a better president than Kerry, because Kerry was a flip-flopper, and I couldn't <laughs> trust him. You know what I mean? At least you know the devil that you were getting with George Bush. I just couldn't trust him. My family was like, "How could you?" You know, Bush, Bush, and but I just—I <laughs> was like, "No way that I'm voting for this guy." So those and and Vonnie was like you know, on the ground in Philadelphia. Vonnie is my sister, y'all. That's Shivana. Vonnie was on the ground in Pennsylvania, knocking on doors, having guns pulled on her, 
you know, like, how you know my name? Like, whoa, take it easy. You're a voter. Right. This is public information. I just <laughs> yeah. want you to vote for Carrie. But, um, yeah, so she was, like, out there putting in work, work. And um, and she just couldn't understand why I liked Bush. Will you, talk, will you talk about your um, your relationship with, with your sister, if you will, a little bit? Just in, and how, I don't know if one of you kind of started earlier. I, I, I feel like almost activism is, is too uh, soft a word for what you guys mm-hmm. are doing. I mean, this is your life. You know yeah. what I mean? So, but if if we use that term, was there one of you that, that um, you know, started going more towards the activism path first? And then, you know, after, I'm also curious as to what this whole process has been like working with your sister to make, you know, being side by side with her protesting and working with her on a daily basis. It was uh, our first rally we attended together. Um, How old are you? Yeah, I don't know. I don't know. I was maybe in my 20s. It was whenever mm-hmm. Sean Bell died. Okay. There's been so much death at the hands of the police that it's hard to keep track. You know, so it was a rally for Sean Bell. I remember um, it was down Fifth Avenue. We marched from Fifth Avenue to one police plaza. And um, that was the first time we marched, and we did it together. You know, um, Black Lives Matter, when we founded Black Lives Matter, she's always been... Uh, if we could do a comparison, uh, I would say she's always been the person behind the scenes making sure that everything gets done. Mm. She would be um, what you would call the chief executive officer Mm -hmm. of sorts, right, who made sure everything was getting done, and I would be the face of the brand. You know, so both both sides work in tandem, but one is always outside. One is always on the front lines. One is always making things happen. Um, And the other is behind the scenes, making sure that everything is working the way that it was supposed to. And it wasn't until her she decided to run. She was like, Mm -hmm. "Okay, I'm running for Congress that she stepped out from behind the scenes. Mm -hmm. So she's always been there. It's, it's best because, you know, like how we're sitting at this table, we sat at my mom's table and came up with Black Lives Matter in New York. We sat at our table and came up with a MLK march where people marched from five different boroughs. Mm-hmm. You know, all of, this, all of these things have been like us bouncing ideas uh, back and forth across the kitchen table. So it's, it's cool because, you know, regular people, you could curse them out. And then walk away. <laughs> you know, there's no HR department. Right. My mother's the HR department. <laughs> you know what I mean? Is she a good HR yeah. department? No, she's always on my sister's <laughs> side. But sometimes she'll be like, "No, he's right. You're wrong." But um, so it's it's family. You know, you fucking curse each other out. How do you separate family and also? I mean, you know, it's there's also business sides to it and organization and, and disag- How do you guys handle disagreements? Uh, I'll give you a perfect example. Um, activists are weirdos. Quote me on it. Activists are fucking weird. Everything bothers activists. And Siobhan is a type A personality. Mm-hmm. Um, she's a businesswoman. She worked in finance. Yep. You know finance people. They are, sensitivity is not their thing. <laughs> right? You, you have a, a big heart, but it's about executing and getting to a goal. So when she stepped out from behind the scenes, 
she had to understand how the landscape of activism works, mm. right? Um, in the business world, you can look at somebody, point at them, and say, you're ineffective, you are a hindrance to progress, you are fired. It's no problem. That's how you run a business, mm -hmm. right? But in activism, you have to hold hands, you know, you have to sit <laughs> in a circle, you have to explain who's feeling what yeah. and why. So sensitive. And it's good. I'm listen, I'm still partially a toxic man. I just got chewed out for being a toxic man this morning and I was completely wrong. Oh yeah. And um, on social media. And I was completely wrong. And I had to like sit back and take it in, like, okay, they're right. I'm deleting this right now. But um so so we are from the streets. Not saying that um, you know, we're Nino Brown, New Jack City, but we are definitely from the South Bronx. We think like people from the South Bronx with all our degrees and education. And um the activism world is very different. It's hyper sensitive. It's a place where ideals um, are valued more than impact. Say more about that. Uh, okay. Ideals versus impact. Um, idealistically, Governor Cuomo is part of the problem. Mm -hmm. He perpetuates uh, white supremacy. That's idealistically. From a perspective of impact, when we were in Minnesota, we were on the phone in, with him about three times in that week negotiating laws hmm. for this Say Their Names Act, right. right? So idealistically, we shouldn't have anything to say to him. But if we want impact and if we saying. want our voices to be heard, and, and when I say our voices, the voices of the people mm -hmm. to be heard, then we have to talk to that man. So where you have people who will say, I will not talk to that man. Those are ideologists. To have people who say, I don't like what you do, but let's work together to find this solution, that's a ruthless pragmatist. Mm. And we are ruthless pragmatists. Now, talk to me about that um, you know, legislation process and drafting legislation. I know you were part of multiple, um, one of which is the I Can't Breathe Act. Mm -hmm. that you've talked about um, with Nick Cannon and all that. Uh, what is that process like for you, I think, behind the scenes? Because I think that's, I'm curious as to, you know, how does one go about writing a piece of legislation? I know that you have uh, a law degree, mm -hmm. um, so you know that more, I guess, the, the legal and technical side of it. Um, but how does it work, you know, behind the scenes with the team and, and thinking, okay, we need this in here, that's out of here. I mean, what's that process like? Okay. So with the I Can't Breathe Act, we were out in Minnesota and um, in a meeting. Uh, I said, we need to get Linda Cherian, our director of operations, our ideas for legislation. That was once. Second meeting, two days ago, two days later, Vani said, we need to get Linda <laughs> those ideas. Uh, then we flew, they flew back to New York. I flew out to LA and Linda nudged everybody. So, she gave everybody uh, a nudge, and they sent her a couple of pieces. I put them together. I presented them to Nick Cannon. 
Uh, he had some insights he wanted to edit, to, to add. Then I came back to New York and called a meeting. Um, pizza, uh, wine, right? That's, that's the beverage of choice? Yes. I'm, well, White. I don't drink. Oh, you I don't, don't. I'm through four years sober. Oh, wow. But I know what the people yeah. mean. I got to give people, you know what I'm saying? I got to give people in work mode. You like, know, you know. Yeah, yeah. Come on, that's leadership, bro. <laughs> right? So so we got uh we got some we got some pizza. We got um some wine and now everybody's sitting around with their laptops. Uh we have a meeting, we do a check-in session. Mm-hmm. You know, you know check-ins. Mm-hmm. Um how do you feel physically? How right. do you feel mentally? And um we went through some things and then we kind of split up, right? I had filled in some of the blanks and then everybody Mario handled education. Donnelly, who's a third third year student um, at CUNY Law School, he handled housing. Glenn did tech. Nepal worked with her young people. Um, Shivana was working on the financial aspects, gotcha. and everybody played. I mean, well, not played, but I, we turned up some mm-hmm. loud ass rap music, right? <laughs> and, and we're in 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 the honeycomb hideout. We're in our little spot, and everybody's typing away and talking, and we finally came up with something. And then, um, you know, the next day we came back, we regrouped, we sent it out for social media. And the day after that, we held a rally in Times Square to announce it to everybody. So while everybody's working on that, I'm announcing it to the press, Mm. right? Right. And getting everything put up on the website. So uh, in a lot of ways, we share responsibility. Um, Everybody in our organization can go anywhere in this country and launch a campaign mm. and know how to conduct every aspect of it. Um, as co-founders, if people in our organization couldn't do that, we'd be failures. Mm. Yeah. And you said one thing that I that I really like. I mean, there, I have a bunch of different quotes that we'll go through, but um, you said, while protests are good, changing laws are better, which I think is, uh, you know, resonates and, and I think brings in this uh, aspect that you also talk about a lot is, is accountability. Mm-hmm. Um, when you're drafting these laws and these pieces of legislation, is that, uh, you know, how do you kind of integrate accountability? Because I think that's really obviously one of the massive issues is the lack of accountability on so many different levels. Mm-hmm. Um, how do you kind of make sure that you get everything ingrained the way you need it and then make sure that ultimately it's not only just passed, but then people are held to the standards of that legislation and are held accountable? Okay. Well, I apply the IRAC message, which is something that I learned in law school. It's identifying the issue. What are the current rules that apply? uh, Drafting an analysis Mm -hmm. and then coming to a conclusion. Right. So you take the IRAC method method. You draft your legislation. So you say, okay, the biggest problem right now is police lying on the reports to cover for other police Mm -hmm. officers because cameras won't be there all the time. So uh, what's the current, that's the issue, what's the current rule? Well, what applies to this is falsification of government documents, Mm. right? So what's our analysis? There's something called the blue wall, which means police don't snitch on other cops. And you look back at, you know, the mafia, in La Costa Nostra and how they don't snitch on each other. The police have a stronger code than the mafia, 
right? Because from the brass all the way down, if cops turn on other cops, they're punished internally. Uh. They don't get promotions. Um, you remember Serpico, their lives are in danger. So how do we challenge that? Okay, uh, that's our analysis. And the conclusion is, if a police officer lies on a report mm-hmm. and it's d- discovered that they're lying, then that officer will go to jail for one to three years and lose their pension. What's the end result? If you have two cops, one beats the crap out of somebody. What usually happens is they'll say something like suspect or perpetrator made an aggressive act toward the cop or they fabricate the crime in another way. However, now if this happens, the cop has to think, well, if I get caught in this lie, I'll be arrested. And um, that changes the outcome. Because now the cop is not thinking about the police and their brotherhood. What that cop is thinking about is little young Karen and little Billy, right? right. right? And like their college fund yeah. and that mortgage. Hit them where it hurts. That mortgage I yeah. got to play. Yeah, and I lose everything if I lie for you. Right. You shouldn't have did what you did. And now it makes it that with with passing that law, that'll make it easier to prosecute those cops. This is common sense legislation. And um, this is what we're going to push hard. If you think about it, now that cops are being scrutinized Mm -hmm. and chokehold bans are happening across the country, now you see police choking someone and putting their knee on someone's lap, putting their knee on someone's neck, and another cop is tapping them up. Take right. it easy. Right. You never saw that before. Yeah. If if that happened with George Floyd, he'd be alive. Right. If that happened with Eric Garner, um, Daniel Pantaleo would not have killed him. Right. 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 So there when you apply consequences, when you attach consequences to actions, then uh police will behave differently. And that's why we need to pass the blue wall bill. Do you feel like we're at a genuine turning point? Yes. I feel like hope is on the horizon. Why so? How so? How do you how do you kind think, of analyze the this turning point? I think that we've hit rock bottom with policing, mm-hmm. to where enough people in this country. It's always been about turning the public sentiment toward police accountability. Okay. Right now, you have you know people who never knew what abolishing the police looked like. Like, well, what does that mean? Yeah. Um, yeah, well, we create communities where we don't need police, where we police ourselves. And they're like, well, I don't know if that works. And I'm like, well, you can look at Hasidic communities, mm-hmm. right? They have their own police. They have their own ambulances. This is a model we can follow, right? Right. So this works. You talk about defunding the police, the conservatives are like, oh, they want to take money from the police. But what they're not talking about is cure violence organizations like uh, GMAC, like Save Our Streets, like Street Corner Resources. In these precincts where, where these cure violence organizations operate, those are former gang members, former drug dealers, ex-formerly incarcerated people, they go out and defuse uh, hostile situations mm-hmm. amongst community members. In those communities, murder rates sometimes drop 70, 80 percent 
over the course of a year. So it works. Let's fund these people. You know what I mean? And there's not one case where a, a, a cure violence person has actually killed a community member. Right. And they work without guns. You know, they work without violence. It's all cerebral. And now we're in a place where America where people are open to these ideas, but you get Donald Trump and he's just, he understands that white supremacy um, rules on fear. Mm. Joe Biden understood that. You know, when he was telling people we, we need to incarcerate people in masses um, because I don't feel safe for my mother. Or I don't feel safe for my wife. So right now we're definitely at a turning point because people's minds have been open. There's been a great awakening. Right. And that's why, you know, I'm not out here martin, marching. I, I'll march if I have to, but what I'm doing is supplying people with solutions, you know? And what I think also, um, what I think is amazing and um, really remarkable about you as a person is that, and I correct me, I see you as a realist. I see you as someone who tells it as it is. And one of those ways um, that really stood out to me is, uh, I don't know which show you said it, um, but you said, Black people need to understand that Democrats are not on our sides, Republicans hate us, and that all we have is us. And I think that's a beautiful quote, and I think is, uh, you know, that really struck me. And I want you to uh, to explain what you meant, because um, you'll always do it better than anybody yeah. else. Um, but I think that that's so powerful because, you know, the Democratic Party, I mean, we could say whatever we want about the Republicans, but the Democratic Party has incredible flaws as well. They expect all the black vote every time, yet they make no change. Um, but I'll let I'll let you kind of explain what you meant by what you meant by that, and how you see kind of the the political spectrum with regards to how they treat the black communities. Okay, now I make it a practice not to drink anything that I didn't see poured, but I'm trusting you, <laughs> hey, Felix. As as Josh, I'm trusting you, Josh. <laughs> all right, <laughs> it's coming. Hey, it's coming. Things right from are that, real. Hey, it's coming right from that Brita filter. Okay, all right, things is real out here. They trying I'm, to take me off, man. <laughs> Uh, uh, you no. good? <laughs> they got me, no. But, um, man, listen, uh, it's a shame that 1960s, 30, 50 years later, I am doing nothing but echoing the sentiment of Malcolm X, mm -hmm. right? Yeah. It's crazy. Uh, we're not doing anything but echoing the sentiment of the Black Panthers. Right. It's amazing how we out here and we're marching and we're saying things and we think that they're so profound. And then, you know, my sister and I are at the kitchen table watching documentaries and Angela Davis is saying the same thing. And it's like, well, we're absolutely not original. And tragically, they were saying the same things 50 years ago. I mean, let's face the facts. Democrats want to keep us permanently handicapped. Because if we thought for ourselves, mm. if we were able to build for ourselves, then why would we need the same old democratic machine, right? right? Uh, Republicans are shrewd capitalists, and they don't want to share the wealth. So why would they teach us how to fish, right? 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 Nobody wants to teach us how to fish. So we're going to teach ourselves, and that's why we're starting a, um, financial literacy classes and um, teaching people how to do for themselves. Um, we talk about black economics, 
but black capitalism is not the cure to our problems. Um, if we started talking about capitalism through the lens of socialism, hmm. right? I, I'm what you might call a champagne socialist. I What's believe that, that I, I like nice things, you know? <laughs> I like cool trucks. I like sneakers that are expensive. I like cool clothes that are expensive. And I should be able to have that, right? right? But at the same time, I'll see a homeless person and get a homeless person a hundred bucks, mm-hmm. you know? And I'm not just saying that to brag, but I'm just talking about, like, if I could smoke uh, uh, a 15 or $20 cigar, I could put that in somebody's hand who's hungry, mm-hmm. right? So, none of us are good until we're all good. If we're, we're thinking like shrewd capitalists, then black people will still be starving because black wealth is real and we have wealth now. But there are black people who are homeless, who live in dilapidated houses. There are black people that are hungry, right? So when we start talking about climbing that socioeconomic ladder, we have to understand that we have to provide for those who need it. Mm -hmm. I don't want to say those who are lesser than, but those who who are less capable of providing for themselves. Like, you can buy an island with a mountain on it. I'd love to have my own island. I'd love to have a mountain. What are you calling it? Um, wow, that's that's crazy. It, Hawk it, Island? It, nah, it wouldn't be Hawk Island. It would be like some indigenous thing or something beautiful. Yeah. You know what <laughs> I mean? Because it's, it's not mine. It's, it's God. It's just the earth. I'm just cool enough to live on it. I mean, privilege. No, definitely not the wrong. <laughs> I'm just blessed enough to live on it. You know what I mean? So I think, like, I have a lot of friends. Like, I was out at my friend's place in, um, in, in, in L.A. He's driving... Tricked out Audi Turbo, this white. His wife has the Range Rover. He has, you know, a nice apartment overlooking the Staples Center. He's chilling, bro. And but at the same time, he does for people. Right. You know what I mean? Like I think people should be able to have whatever they want, whatever makes them happy. But you should be taxed enough, and you should give enough to cover everyone else. You know. Yep. Now we're going to take a quick break. I'm going to talk go ahead, um, about my sponsor for the show, Nanocraft CBD. Athletes come in all shapes and sizes, but they all have one thing in common. Their performance is limited by their recovery time, anxiety, and quality of sleep. That's why thousands of athletes are turning to Nanocraft CBD to improve their game. Nanocraft is the number one CBD for athletes. Whether you're a professional, a weekend warrior, or on the mend from an injury, Nanocraft's broad-spectrum CBD is designed for recovery and performance. Nanocraft contains 0% THC and is used by PGA golfers, UFC fighters, Olympians, and thousands of men and women looking for an advantage in their sport and their life. For a limited time, use promo code Felix, to get 20% off your order at nanocraftcbd.com. You'll also get a free CBD lip balm with your order if you use that coupon code. That's nanocraftcbd.com. Use promo code Felix for 20% off. Go check it out today. They've also sent Hawk a uh, a nice little goodie bag. I hope you're a CBD fan, Um, and uh, you'll have to let me know how that is. I want to there's there's something that I think is uh really brilliant of what you said. I mean, it's so true. Um it's something that uh I think people don't really think of when they think of inequality, 
but food injustice. Um, this is something that you're a big advocate for. I mean, you know, during the pandemic, Shavana told me you, you, you've also mentioned it, how you guys were going around, uh, you know, delivering food to people that couldn't, didn't have enough or whatever the case may have been. Um, talk about what food and when you, when you say food injustice is one of the biggest issues at hand, um, explain for the people that aren't familiar with, uh, this idea. Well, the number one killer of black people is heart disease, um, diabetes, and that comes from what we ingest. You look at advertising to our communities, um, we're being sold on products that kill us. We're, we're a, a, a unhealthy lifestyle is, un, is, is promoted to us at an alarming rate. Also poor white people, right? Um, a lot of people don't understand how much we have in common with poor white people. And um, the politicians are the ones that people will never see that or they make it hard for us to see that. But uh, so you look at the Bronx. It's the 26th unhealthiest county in New York State. There are 26 counties in New York State and the Bronx is the unhealthiest. Um, I had a dinner with a dude who owns a lot of like high-end restaurants in um, New York City. I'm really rubbing elbows with a lot of <laughs> important folks like you, bro. No. But I'm like, but no, it's, it's crazy because people want to make change, mm-hmm. and they see us as like real leaders. Right. And I don't say I'm a leader, but I run with a bunch of leaders. So, um. He told me yesterday, not only is it the unhealthiest place in New York Mm -hmm. State, he said per capita, the Bronx is the unhealthiest place in the world. How do they define unhealthy? Um, Good question. Uh, Leading in sickness, you know, cholesterol, heart disease, you know what I mean? Poor health. Um, So, yeah, and that's all intentional. We used to call it um, food deserts, but... Food deserts, a desert is something that occurs naturally. Mm-hmm. We call it a food apartheid because this is completely intentional, mm-hmm. right? There's no reason that there's sweet greens all over uh, Manhattan. Yeah. There's healthy places all yeah. over, um, you know, gentrified Brooklyn. Right. But in the Bronx, you have a hard time finding healthy food. Mm-hmm. And even in the, 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 the bodegas on the corner that makes, make... Um, Smoothies, they're putting like sugar in smoothies. You know what I mean? Right. So it's like even we're we're just trained to be unhealthy. So we have to retrain ourselves um, to really address the uh, address the issue. And there's something that I am missing. Oh, companies, these fast food companies, these beverage companies have scientists in laboratories figuring out chemical chemical mixtures to addict people to bad foods mm. okay so they're there's they're finding ways to get you addicted to mcdonald's to coca-cola to pepsi cola and when you get fat and out of shape these same people point fingers and they're at making you. it cheap so yeah. that you know you can you can always get it you can always get it yeah. as opposed to you know you want a two liter pepsi is two dollars uh, you want a two liter carrot juice it's yeah. like seven dollars yeah. you know what i mean and um so we want to change that, and we believe in 
promoting change by doing it ourselves. We teamed up with Impossible Meats and we gave away 5,000 Impossible Patties um, in the Bronx. We had to hire food trucks. I spent $15,000 on food trucks, which came down to about $3 per meal. But still, like people got real plant-based food and you had people walking around the projects like mm, this is good i'm like you know that ain't beef right you know those are plants right we could do this we could do this wow. like this healthy lifestyle we can do this it doesn't taste all bad and um that's real mm. that's real like that's like um gil scott herring said that the revolution won't be terrible televised right and people like yeah you ain't gonna see what's really happening on tv that's not what he was talking about he was talking about the real revolution being in our minds. Same thing that Tupac mm. said. Like, the real revolution doesn't happen in the streets. It happens when people start thinking right. differently. And how do you get people to continuously think differently? Because I think, you know, what what I think is almost uh, really a shame is that, you know, there's there's one big event that happens, then you have the social media warriors who, who, who post one thing or two, and then it dies out, and then, you know, there they are, and then they wait for the next one, and then, you know, you get to the cycle. But for you, how do you continue this revolution so it's not just, you know, the one time, oh, people are learning to that this food is good, or, oh, people are learning about this legislation, but continuing the movement and not so that, you know, the white little social activists that, that are using this as a fad or to, to get Instagram followers um, actually continue, we all continue to, to push all these things to the forefront of what's on our mind? Good question. Um, good, good, good question. Uh, we have to find a way to harness the energy. Mm. And what I see is, I see, oh God, it, it just has to come together. I've, I've actually taken the last few days off. I've been doing something a little rusty. Right? <laughs> it's not sharp. It's not raw all the time. But I'm going to keep it real with you. The We have to harness the energy. And I've been using this example these last couple of days. There have been meetings. But we pulled 25,000 people in the Times Square for the um, blueprint, which right. is where we laid out the legislation. A lot of them we knew, a majority of them we didn't. Now just imagine if I'm mobilizing 25,000 people who I've fed, right. who I've helped to get resources, mm. who we taught um, financial literacy, taught to love themselves, right? Love their blackness, love their borough, love their brownness, love their brothers and sisters. When we bring 25,000 of those people out, that's a mobilization. That's the difference between organizing and activism. And no one has done that, right? You know that we're independent. We're not part of BLM Global, right? right? Um, imagine if BLM Global would have mastered mobilizations and organizations. I don't blame them. Nobody knew what we really had, but that's why we're starting Black Opportunities so that we right. can mobilize and organize people all around the country. This is, this is the next step. I can't, I can't give people the 
I can't give people the marches anymore. I'll come out. I'll make a noise. But best believe, if we're marching, it's strategic. It's always been strategic right. for us. Um, when we shut down the highway last year around this time for Eric Gardner, it was because the cop who killed him was going on trial for his job, and nobody knew about it. So we shut down the FDR at rush hour. So every news camera out there would let the world know, because this is breaking news. Right. They're shutting down the highway in New York. Right. And during rush hour, what, what are they out there for? And that went out across the country and shined a light on the mayor, shined a light on the police department, shined a light on the city. I believe in a pressure game. Mm-hmm. When I march just to, to apply pressure, we're not just going out there just, you know, to get, get some steam off our right. chest. Like, this is a pressure game for us. It's about building power. And I think that was one other thing I really wanted to bring up was um, that new... The, the black opportunities. Mm-hmm. Um, if you if you'll go in and and just talk a little bit more about that, I know you've you've done it on um, Nick Cannon's podcast, but for people who haven't listened to that and what it means that black ops, the the black opportunities that you, um, I don't know if it's if it's necessarily an, uh, kind of a, an organization that you're you're looking to do um, and how that would work, and I think that also just kind of plays into this idea that you know invest in our communities, invest in our people, crime will go down. We won't need. <laughs> that police presence. You won't need all these things. Um, so we just kind of briefly uh, talk about that and what that is. Black, black Opportunities is us finding a church, uh, recruiting children to come in and teaching them about their history mm. beyond slavery, um, all the way back to Africa. Um, I can't say, just say black people because in most of our communities we live next door to our brown brothers and sisters. So open it up to the kids in the community, teaching them to love themselves, teaching them about money, having black executives from these corporations come in and give them lessons on financial freedom, right? But at the same time, having um, you know our, our Afro-socialist brothers and sisters come in and teach them about uh, cooperatives, and how the community can come together and open a business and run that business themselves, uh, teaching them self-defense. And a lot of people say, oh, you're training an army, but they neglect to mention that teaching self-defense also comes along with teaching discipline. Mm. What we're creating is a new gang of sorts, a new street tribe, where in which positivity is the culture. Mm pride and and knowledge of self is the culture. Uh, We'll also be training adults to monitor the police, right? We cop watch. We have a show on BET called Cop Watch America. Um, And in states where we do that, where, where, where we do that in places like Atlanta, our people will be armed with weapons. And people are like, oh, my God, he's waging war on the police. No one said that. Everybody knows that I'm not a fan of violence. I only condone violence in the form of self-defense. But people already cop watch with weapons. Right. So f- folks would love to sensationalize it and um, make it something that it's not. But um, what we're talking about is everything, for the most part, that we're asking the government to do, we're doing in black opportunities. We're building up our own community. We're taking over our schools. Now, you have to understand, and I always say, look at Jewish communities as a model. Those folks control their schools. They have their own schools. They teach their children. They control everything. That's it. In their community. Yeah. Right? 
So why can't we do go that? to Williamsburg for people? Who, you know, you can go to Williamsburg. Everything. Explain it. I mean, it's for people who, who don't. Williamsburg, Brooklyn, uh, in the Hasidic communities, it's the supermarkets, the schools, the school buses, the police, the ambulances. Um, I don't even know what else. I mean, everything is controlled by Hasidic members of that community. I, I think there's no other way to put it. Um, and it's just, it's almost like really, a, a, at least there, like a town within our city. Mm -hmm. um, I don't know how, you know, and that's really... When you when you say that model, I can I can see it because drive by Williamsburg and you see that every day. That's it, and because I want that, because I want that, they're not accused of being racist. You know, they're not accused of hating everyone else. When you're black and you want that, then you're radical. But who's telling us that? It's the institution of white supremacy that tries to keep black people oppressed and down. So I'm building it. You know, I told this to the New York Post, and they said, no whites in the Bronx. That was the headline. Like, <laughs> no two-page spread, no whites in the Bronx. And I'm like, that's what you took from it? Yeah. I was talking about um, how beautiful the Bronx is, right. how big our apartments are, and how I don't want what happened to uh, Harlem, what happened to parts of Brooklyn, to happen in the Bronx. No, no, stay out of our communities. You weren't there when people were getting shot up and crack was being sold. Don't come now and displace people. There's so many uh, bad things that ha that come along with gentrification. So I'm anti-gentrification. And to my white allies who are like, I can't move into your neighborhood. You can move into our neighborhoods if you are investing in that community, right. if you are volunteering in that community, if you do the work in that community. And I think also, um, you know, what's I think even most powerful about your message and Siobhan and everyone who's part of this movement is you guys have never once been about putting anybody else down. You guys just want to simply uplift the black community fi finally. Yeah. You know, and I think also um, what's just so, so powerful about you guys is not only uh, the way that you guys have, have come together and mobilized and grown this brand and that's kind of part of my next question is is how do you continue you know to to do you guys set five ten-year goals of what um legislation will look like maybe society will look like um you know because a lot's happening and it's happening quick and you know how do you guys see the next you know years of landscape landscape ahead of us that's what we're laying down now because the last five years six years has been completely reactive Right. Right. And we won yeah. a lot of battles. We've we've had like six pieces of legislation that we've worked yeah. on, maybe seven, passed. And 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 not to take away from organizations who have been fighting on these things for um decades, but when things happen, government officials call us and they say, How can we help? Mm -hmm. And they know us, they know our brand, they know the attention that we command and the power we have in the community. And we negotiate. We, it's a business. Right. We negotiate, and we get things. Get this things this done. country's built on being a business. Come on, you know. Man, what the fuck, I went to law school for. Yeah. Like, why you think I have a business degree? <laughs> 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 like, you know, like, yeah. So, so, and um, it's it's not profitable, to me personally. But um, there are people who are career activists who make a lot of money. 
yeah. doing this, but um, this is a labor of love for me. Like I'm sitting here, and the reason I need the CBD oil and and tea <laughs> is because I have nerve damage from the police. Like they damage my back, they damage my sole shoulder, and that helps. You know, I hate taking. I'm four and a half years sober, so I don't even like pain pills. You know what I mean? I don't like putting anything in my body body that'll um alter my senses. So um, the CBD helps. Are you, uh, are you hopeful? Are you, do you, you know, I mean, it's, for me, it's always also remarkable to, to hear people like you and Shivana talk and to see smiles on your face, you know, with everything going on. Are you, you know, do you see positive, a positive future, truly? Yeah. Um, I see the tables are turning and the white male dominance of the world is coming to an end. Mm. And that's why they're fighting so hard. Now we're pushing toward a place where black people have equity, where women mm-hmm. of all colors have equity. We're reaching a place where all voices and people are respected. And it, and it requires a altering of our senses, of our thought process, a revolution of the mind of sorts, uh, but it's happening. And we are not outnumbered, we are not overpowered, we are out-organized. And we as a people are organizing the masses to overthrow this patriarchal, white supremacist power structure and people want to paint that as the end of civilization. Mm. No, it's the evolution of our civilization, and that's what's on the horizon. And I can see it, I can feel it, I can almost taste it. How do you, um, you know, how can people truly make sure that this movement does not die out and on a daily basis uplift, make true change, not just post a quick Instagram story. How can, you know, how can people, you know, from everywhere truly get active if you, you're the best ways? They have to do the work. What does that look like? That if we're launching a campaign to for the Blue Wall Bill, mm-hmm. get involved, lobby, disseminate information. Um, white people have to confront racism at every stop and turn. I'm, I'm not here to convince white people anymore. White people should educate white people. Right. Let us go in our communities and build our communities. Right. And we liaise with our true allies on the best messages to put out. Mm-hmm. You understand yeah, what I'm yeah, saying? Yeah. Um, investing in black business. Right. Uh, not gentrifying black communities. Um, pushing for education reform in the sense that African-American history is American history. It should not just be taught in one month. It should be um, taught throughout the school year. Uh, There's just so much work to be done. And what I see is I see a lot of um, activists who are ambulance chasers, right? Like Al Sharpton, right? This man flies around from disaster to disaster giving speeches and not really changing anything. On a private jet. On a private jet. Uh, Mayor de Blasio is truly a problem to black New York. And he allows this man to come and serve turkeys in Harlem on Thanksgiving. 
um, there are young celebrity activists who fly around the world and are like baby Al Sharptons. Um, what I'm here to do is build programs. We have invested in our youth. My mentee, Nepal Kiazolu, um, sat down with Anthony Anderson Cooper, did 60 Minutes. Um, she is a le- she's the number two youth activist after Greta Thunberg. Number two youth activist after Greta fucking Thunberg, right? And she grew up in our organization from the time she was 16 and learned and was elevated to president and is out there actively changing the world. That's how you invest in youth. I have parents that I see in the Bronx. Oh, my kids are in college. They told me how you came in and taught about Black Lives Matter, taught them how to organize. It's a trade. Mm -hmm. Teaching people how to organize and advocate for their community is a trade. Oh, thank you so much for doing that. God bless you. Let's take a selfie so I can show my kid I saw you. Um, The people we've helped, the families we've fed. Christmas, we didn't do the big community room, come and pick up a toy thing. We didn't do that. We picked out 10 families and got them computers and iPads and bikes, right? Gave out uh, two iPads and a few hundred dollars to the Legacy Gardener Foundation on the anniversary of um, Eric Gardner's death. That's his youngest daughter. Um, Gave away 15 iPads, 15 laptops in the hood, in the projects uh, a couple weeks ago, right? Gave away five iPads, the 5,000 Impossible Burgers, and 90 boxes of fresh produce in the Bronx, in the unhealthiest uh, 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 county, in in the poorest section of the poorest congressional district in the country. We gave, we gave out so many groceries that people was going home with garbage bags full of fresh produce, and it was still enough for everybody. Okay? Like, this is what we do. The impact is being felt, um, giving out food, knocking on 100 doors, giving out food during COVID. We do real shit. You know what I mean? Like boots on the ground. And the thing is, our allies, white folk, came out in COVID, mask on, whatever, whatever, PPE intact, packing up groceries. That's how you help. You don't just hold up a sign. You don't just post something. You find an organization that's doing real work, and you go in there and you get down and dirty with them. That's what's important. Like, this is how we bring about change. Like, man, that marching shit is, listen, it's, 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 we done marched. We've been marching for a lot of years. Now it's time to build. And I continue to march. But now it's time to build up the community, man. Like, these, these, these shootings in our community are eating at my soul. Mm. And I understand that it's the, socioeconomic status of the people and their mental health that leads them not to value their lives. And if they don't value their lives, then how do they value the lives of others? So instead of me giving a speech and criminalizing people, I'm trying to go in there and help them to add value to their lives. You know? Beautiful. To wrap things up, how do you, uh, you know, obviously I hope many, many, many more years of long, healthy life but uh, do you ever think of, uh, you know, the Hawk Newsom legacy? Hmm. I want a statue in the Bronx. <laughs> I ain't playing. Hey, I, I mean, I'll advocate. That's I'll, all I'll, I want. I'll, I'll advocate for it. Right on. Like, when I die at 90, like the psychic said, just give me a statue in the Bronx. Right? 
because the Bronx, they don't know how to appreciate the efforts of the people of the Bronx. You know that there's not like a cool Herc statue? Mm. Wow. You know that there's not like a hip hop, now they're building a museum. Um, but like there's not a statue of a, a DJ with turntables and break dancers in the Bronx. Mm. Celebrate our heroes. Mm-hmm. I ain't tired of this, man. If 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 there's any legacy legacy for me, it'll be the lives that I changed, the programs that I created. If you don't create programs that last, you ain't do shit. The um, Black Panthers created the 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 the, the People's Food pro- Program, and the government stole that. They started giving out breakfast in school. They started healthcare clinics in the hood. This was mimicked, right? Yeah. Like, like that's that's like, that's how my story will be told, through, the work that I've done. People ain't got to celebrate me. I am not the leader of this movement. I am just a voice. I am a highly trained voice, that gives me a um bigger platform than a lot of other people, but I am no greater or lesser than them. But what I am is obligated to them to speak the truth whenever I sit down in front of people and um, elevate those voices because they are not voiceless. They're not voiceless. It's just their voices aren't being amplified. So that's what I do. I come out and I amplify the voices. And um, I'm not a liberator. But uh, I can help people liberate themselves. So, um, yeah, give me that statue, son. <laughs> Beautiful. Um, Hawk, I mean, you know, Josh is here for all my sessions. He knows when, when somebody walks in, and this, you know, I love all my guests, but when somebody walks in, you can feel a special individual. And, uh, man, it's, uh, it's such an honor to have had your sister on. She's uh, absolutely a absolutely phenomenal human being. Um, and now Better you, than me. <laughs> <laughs> and now you, um, you know, I, I thank you for, for taking the time. I know you're incredibly busy for coming out here. Um, and you know, I just, uh, I'm just happy to, to have had you and been in your presence. And I know that, uh, the work that you do for, for, for your community, I mean, you get there, you're out, out there daily, um, merits a statue and a whole lot more. So, uh, I can't <laughs> wait to see that. Thank you so much, Hawk. Can I just say one last thing? Yes. Um, Here's what it is, right? I want to shout out and uplift all of the imperfect people. Mm. I am perfectly imperfect. And to all those other perfectly imperfect people, it is our time. Let no mistake, let no misstep hold you back. We are all works in progress god is continuously working on us and now is our time to take the world back mm-hmm. from those people who give that illusion of perfection mm. and create the world that we want to live in because if there's one thing about people who've had hard lives who make mistakes they have compassion they have hearts you know how they talk about you know honor amongst thieves and like I've never seen more unified communities than poor communities. Mm. They're always sharing. There's always love. So to them perfect people, it's our time to change the world. Beautiful. Hawk Newsom, everybody.
Thank you, brother.